cut it, cut it. That means cut in my... This is not Martha Dean. And, uh... Wow, I'm back. Uh, this is Gene Shepard. <laughs> and I am back at, uh... I can say that it will take me at least, uh... uh oh, probably a week and a half or maybe even a month to begin to sort out all the strange, exhilarating, exciting, uh, some kinds of, perhaps even in some cases, uh, frightening imp uh, impressions that I've had. And for those of you who wonder what I'm talking about, yesterday morning, actually this morning at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock thereabouts, I came up, let's, don't worry about it. Hey, fella, fella, just watch in here, okay? I don't know what you're looking at in there, but watch me. I'm doing the show. I don't know what that knob is doing. I'm here. But uh, I, I got off a plane about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning from Lima, Peru. Uh, we came in by way of Panama City in the canal zone and uh, up to Miami and finally to Kennedy Airport after a couple of delays. And the origin of the trip back started at Yarima Cocha, which is a jungle outpost village uh, somewhere over on the other side of the Andes from Lima, Peru. Uh, perhaps some of you might have heard from time to time on uh, Barry Farber's show, at least once, you might have heard a, a, uh, an interview that Barry did with a man named Atariri. Uh, it's pronounced Tariri. Uh, no, the, the, the pronunciation is very important. Uh, <laughs> it's not a Spanish word. It's a that's a Shapa word, Shapra rather. It's a Shapra Indian name, and it's not Hariri. Uh, they it all comes out in a rush. And he is the chief, or at least one of the chiefs of a segment of that tribe, which is on one of the rivers which forms the headwaters of the Amazon. Uh, they live in country which, uh, according to the maps which I saw that were supplied to me by uh, one uh, the uh, that came through the Peruvian Air Force and a few other sources and the Wycliffe Bible translators who operate a jungle. And, and let me tell you, I want to do several shows on the jungle bush pilots who fly these tiny helio couriers and these tiny Cessna float planes, the only kind of planes, by the way, that will work in the jungle for a lot of reasons, uh, who fly these jungle areas, they're all Americans, under fantastic, incredible conditions. You just could not believe uh, the, the, the thrilling excitement. You know, uh, adventure, I'm going to tell you this as a, as a man who has been in several places in the world and has involved himself with several things. Uh, adventure is always something that can't truly be described. And I'm talking about genuine adventures, not uh, necessarily to go on a safari in Africa that is organized by a safari company uh, or even the, the Hemingway kind of uh, organized adventure. Uh, this uh, the sort of adventure that I have just come through is a totally is a total adventure in the sense that you're not going to kill an animal, you're not going to a place where other people have gone to do a thing that other people do. Uh, this is something else again, and it's almost impossible to tell you or to describe to anyone else just what it was like. You know, it's a funny thing, the three of us, or actually four of us, 
who were involved in this thing, Saul Potemkin, uh, a funny, fine photographer, a quiet, laconic type who had never been out of the United States in his life, incidentally. Can you imagine? Had never been out of the United States in his life, and the first place he goes is the unexplored jungle of the headwaters of the Amazon. And for a long time, as we came into Lima, he kept saying, you know, he kept thinking, well, it's kind of like the Catskills. <laughs> And finally, all of a sudden, when we got over the Andes and we looked out of the Andes, we're flying in a little DC-3, Ted, a jungle airlines called Fawcett Airlines. Fawcett Airlines, F-A-U-C-E-T-T, Fawcett, if you prefer that, Fawcett, they pronounce it there, which was formed by an American who is now dead. Uh, he formed this airlines after World War II using DC-3s. They fly into jungle communities. Uh, on the western or the eastern side of the Andes. Uh, Peru, Peru as a country, is one of the most exciting, unusual, eerie, spooky, beautiful countries in the world. And by the way, I am not, in a, if any of you listen, who t listen to me regularly, I constantly get heckled by people uh, who say, uh, you go there and you come back an expert. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm not going to be an expert. Uh, I'm not trying to do a program on South America. I'm not going to do a show on Chile now and one on Ecuador and so on. I went to the headwaters of the Amazon. I was there. Uh, I am a trained reporter. <laughs> For those of you who listen to me know that. Uh, my life has been devoted to absorbing sights and sounds and listening. And I am going to try to give you in the next couple of days, maybe the next week or two, my impressions of what I consider probably the high point of my life as far as adventures and experience is concerned. Uh, I had no idea it would be like this when I left, and I might point out to anybody who heard it, uh, I, 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 uh, it's not a lark. It started out a little bit that way, but by the time we arrived in Lima, and had begun to go over the Andes, we realized this is a very serious thing. And not only was it serious, there were certain elements of danger in it, and I don't wish to even dwell on that. It had nothing to do with the headhunters, by the way. The headhunters, the people we visited, are ex-headhunters. Uh, no, but no man ever stops being, really, what he once was. And I'm not saying that... Now, everyone laughs when they hear the word headhunter. Uh, and I would like to do a couple of shows on that, and the meaning, the ritualistic meaning that I learned from talking to many of the people who had spent their lives in the jungles. I'm not going to appear, incidentally, as an anthropologist in any of these shows, an expert. I'm appearing as an artist who has seen something and would like to transmit his impressions to you. Are you prepared to accept that? All right. However, I spent, in fact, a night, the night before last, I was sharing a room with a man who was born in Venezuela, uh, who is uh, one of the one of the uh, people who works with these tribes? Very funny, literate man, and he was in his bunk, and I was in mine. It was dark. We were in Lima, and uh, we talked almost the entire night in the dark. And he was telling me about things that he had seen and experienced and knew about the jungle. He lived himself, incidentally, for nine years with a totally Un, what they call an uncontacted tribe that was they had the white man was just they were just making the first contacts with them and trying to uh, break down their language trying to learn their language so that they could produce for them a written language this is fantastic any of you have gone out to the world's fair you know probably you know that i'm not a bible thumper you know that i'm not a i'm not a uh, 
a, uh, a religious fanatic in any sense of the word. But any of you who've gone out to the World's Fair and you see the, uh, the pavilion of the 2,000 tribes, did you see that? You know of this pavilion out there? Well, this is one of the most intriguing. Now that I know about it, I, 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 I would like to do some shows on that. It's a fantastic thing. Uh, and I came back with a totally different concept in my mind of what constitutes the savage. You know, there's a lot of people who think in terms of beautiful people living in the jungle, untouched, beautiful, idyllic lives, and the rotten missionaries go and change them. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, I talked to a couple of Indians who were from the Chapra tribe, through an interpreter, by the way, who... Who, had, who not only gave her life to to uh, dis, to working out the language these uh, these people spoke, but has given her health uh, practically a, a physical wreck as a result of six or seven years in the jungle. This is a deadly jungle. The, the most deadly danger of visiting a place of that kind is the jungle itself. Uh, there is no area on the part anywhere in the globe that I know of. Uh, the Amazon jungle that is more dangerous and not from the standpoint of animals everyone thinks of a jaguar leaping out of the bushes or the, the Tarzan thing you know the one thing they never talk about in Tarzan is the different types of virulent malaria that are that are prevalent in the jungle the different types of parasites uh, you drink water and by the way for the last week I've been drinking water out of the river it's the only place you get water with these tribes uh, they, they get water out of the river, and it's taken them years just to train them not to drink the water raw. Uh, this is not sewage water, of course. This is water, though, that, that is filled with all kinds of liver parasites and amoebic types of diseases and one thing and another. And uh, we were drinking river water for the last... And you'd be surprised how good it tastes. a strange thing after a while. Uh, can you imagine a bush pilot leaping out of his plane? We arrived in a little plane. I, I helped them pull the plane up on the bank. And immediately he he sets and here we are in the jungle, totally uh, not a not a not a living creature within miles. And he was delivering a, a, a battery to a, a, a missionary group who was thousands of miles off the beaten path. They had no way of contacting the outside world. He was delivering a battery, and we were waiting for a dugout canoe containing two naked Indians who were to pick up the battery. And this is the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. Uh, off in the distance were these blue. Of foothills of the beginnings of a of a part of the Andy mountain range in a valley uh, the jungles uh, there were flat and low and the sun was bright and this river was was brilliantly flowing fast moving stream with a gravel bottom and I had helped I actually had leaped out of the plane and pulled it up while he taxied in I pulled it up on the bank we we got the thing tied down and he jumped out of the plane and and uh, immediately filled a, a uh, can that he had with him with water. And while we were waiting for the for the 20 minutes there until the little dugout canoe came around, we had buzzed this little uh, the chakra, which is a which is a little clearing where the native lives. They call that a chakra. This is the the, the place where he lives. It's it's a hard word. It's, it can't be translated really, according to those who know the language. It means the living place. They grow. Uh, field. They grow a little, uh, little bananas and things there, but it's a little tiny chopped out hole in this impenetrable jungle. Uh, flying over the jungle for mile after mile is an, is an indescribable experience in a tiny light plane. 
you can see the, the, the earth just stretches, uh, talk about big sky, the earth stretches endlessly in all directions, a solid green. Uh, no rolling, it's flat, there's no hills, a solid green, impenetrable, nothing, no, there's no holes, no valleys, no bare spots, no fields, just this green. And you know that if the plane goes down in this stuff, uh, the chances of being seen even, or uh, just very slim. He told me a story about his motor cutting out September 1st. This, uh, By the way, from Fort Worth, this guy was fascinating to watch him fly that plane. Literally flies the plane by his body. Taking off from this jungle stream, he, he takes the he takes the wheel in his arms. And he says, "Rock now!" As we go, rawr, rawr, the plane starts here up, rawr, and the trees are coming up. We go up in the air, and he he literally just flies this plane by physical uh, physical force. Talk about flying with a seat of your pants! But as we as we uh, as we uh, sat by this river for a moment, he leaped out. This is to give you an idea of the kind of basic life. Now, everyone thinks that's a terrible life. No, it isn't really. Once they become accustomed to it, it's as much part of life as you taking a bath or uh, brushing your teeth in the morning, just part of life. He jumps out of the plane and he has a little kerosene lamp and he sits and he squats down by the float and lights his little kerosene lamp. It lights up and he holds over the kerosene lamp. He dips up a pan, which he carries in the plane. He dips up a pan of river water and holds it there and he's waiting for it to boil and then as it boils he holds it there for about five minutes while it's boiling and finally it's through boiling and he pours it into his canteen he slaps the canteen the old gi world war ii canteen he slaps the top back on and now he's ready for water they always carry emergency rations in the plane of canteen he loads the canteen up and we, we we sit there for a moment in the sun and then around the bend came this tiny dugout canoe with two indians uh... of the awoka tribe uh, and again, my pronunciations are bad, but these two Indians came in, and they were from a tribe that had just recently been contacted. They were very, very touch-and-go. And they were very funny. They, they came up, and they smile. Oh, they talk, and they put their arm around you, and he gives them the canteen, he gives them the battery, and they, he tells them in, in uh, some kind of a language they had worked out where it goes. It goes to the lady back, the, the missionary back in the jungle. And into the plane we go, and we go off. Now... That's the kind of of uh, thing. Uh, when 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 we all started out, we didn't have any idea that we would run into a thing like this. Uh, and the dangers of this kind of world, the jungle there, are dangers. Which, speaking of jungles, this is W O R A M and F M New York. And the dangers of this kind of jungle are almost all unseen. Uh, they include thousands of. For example, I'll give you a little idea of this. There is a kind of sand fly. Uh, what are you writing, anyway? Huh? I just write station break, 58, 38. Uh, there's a kind of sand fly which, when it bites you, uh, does a peculiar thing. And this is in that area we were. The sand fly uh, produces an, an ulcer. And unless it's treated a certain way uh, very soon, the ulcer heals over. And two to three years later, and the man is perfectly all right, two to three years later, suddenly his palate is attacked. And his palate, it's, it's no, it's, it's fatal. It's always fatal. The palate is attacked and it destroys the palate and you're unable to take in, uh, you're unable to swallow, you're unable to operate. In other words, your entire throat is destroyed and he dies. This is a kind of unseen danger that kills the people there. Their, their, their life expectancy is quite low, quite short. Uh, they have 
several types of, of pernicious liver flukes which come from the water. Uh, there, of course, the, there, uh, the, the vampire bat is an interesting thing. This is, this is a, the area of the vampire bat. And uh, I did not personally see any vampire bats, but they did. Uh, many of the people told me about them. As a matter of fact, the, the uh, translator we were with said that one of the big problems is the vampire bats killing the chickens. These people grow, they have little chickens that they, that they grow in their, their chakras, and the vampire bats attack the chickens. Now, how the vampire bat attacks is that it, it uh, moves in quickly. It's a tiny bat. It's a small bat, and it, it moves in quickly. It bites. Uh, usually the nose of the, of the person is bitten. Uh, the way it bites, though, it bites quickly. It just, it, uh, there's a quick bite with uh, its very sharp teeth, and then it flies off. It does not attach itself to you. It just like that. And the blood flows immediately because it's got sharp, cutting, needle-like teeth that dig deep. And the, instant, the blood flows, and as it, as it bites, it injects an anticoagulant into the wound. And the blood, and the, and the person remains asleep, doesn't even wake up. It's all painless. <laughs> and the blood just flows out, and the bat then laps up the blood. Uh, and uh, this is the way they kill chickens. They'll kill large livestock. And, in fact, they kill, uh, often, from time to time, they'll kill children who cannot uh, stand that much blood being drained from them. And the child will, uh, people will wake in the morning, and the child will be dead because of the bat. This is another story and I'm not here to paint on the other hand the jungle itself is indescribably beautiful uh, great orchids uh, which uh, just can't be can't be uh, can't be described uh, in terms of the orchids that we know uh, it has a strange quality of, of uh, I suppose the word could be uh, the one word that I did hear used as a matter of fact uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a quality of solemnity about it a quality of, uh, of course, solitude. But more than that, uh, there's a kind of cathedral-like air about it. You know, uh, in this kind of heavy rainforest, the undergrowth is not as great as in the small, as in a, there's a different type of forest. Uh, so, because the sun can't get down to the ground. So the smaller plants just don't grow. Of course, there's many of them. There are vines and things like that. But these great trees that, that reach into the air maybe 150 feet. Can you imagine that? A, a tree that's, 50, uh, that's 15 stories or more in height. These fantastic trees just reach up. And they're just, they form a canopy that is impenetrable practically to the sun. And these natives, uh, the, the shoppers and the various Indian tribes, move through this jungle like shadows. Uh, the way they hunt, they live off hunting. For those of you who are interested in how they live, they, they, they live off the land itself. They, they hunt their hunting tribe. They're beginning small adventures in, in uh, agriculture. They grow a, a, little, a little field of bananas, a little tiny field. This is not a field in our, in our sense. Uh, now, I don't want to get involved in, in a lot of details about the life of the shoppers. Uh, they don't live in a village, by the way. Uh, people immediately think of a little native village. They don't live in a village in the jungle, at least in this tribe. They live in small family units. Uh, there's, there may be one or two males with uh, the wives. They're polygamous, incidentally, with wives with their children. And they, they are they're unbelievably uh, friendly and kind to their children. Their children, I never heard a, a, a shopper child cry. They, and they, they, they carry great loads, these tiny little things, a little, little child. They're beautiful children. By the way, the people are beautiful. 
uh, uh, many of the uh, the Indians, uh, there are different types of Indians, different uh, physiological structures, one thing or others. But this particular tribe is one of the most beautiful physically uh, of of the tribes. They're they're about five feet six, just as we described them earlier before we left. Uh, they're heavily muscled. Uh, they're they're strong, muscular, wedge-shaped people. They're they're all like tiny Lou Gehrigs, you know, that that, that big shoulder, muscular quality, uh, flat, uh, flat stomach, uh, uh, great biceps, and their their faces are just uh, their beautiful face. And you can tell too when you talk and, and, and are with them that it is a face uh, that that I suppose is untroubled by many of the things that trouble us and yet is, is troubled by many things that we don't know of. The various spirits, the various fears in the jungle, one thing or other. And let me talk some night about the anacondas, the great anacondas and boas of the area. Uh, I'd love, uh, I, I, I'm going to do this, for those of you who are really interested in this, this coming Saturday night down at the Limelight, I'm going to take many of the things. Incidentally, for those of you who are interested in what I brought back, none of the things I brought back are tourist things. I didn't go into Lima or Pucalpo, which is a... Oh, boy, uh, let me tell you about a jungle frontier town. Uh, they've discovered oil on one of the on one of the rivers up in there, and uh, there's gold in, in this area. But uh, probably six, seven, eight hundred miles from where we were is the city of Pucalpo. City, it's about ten thousand on the banks of this river, and uh, and this is not uh, the things I brought back are not tourist things. These are things that I got from the tribe. In fact, Tariri uh, enjoyed our visit so much. He said as I left, and I'm going to say this w- with all undue unmodesty, uh, Tariri gave his little speech on the river bank when we were getting back into the plane. It's a very touching, strange, touching quality of leaving this little group of 17 people in this dark jungle flying away. Uh, they, they, the tears come in their eyes when, they, when they, they leave you go, you know. It's a hard thing to describe. But Tariri, uh, standing on the shore of the of the bank, there wearing his his regalia, he wears his his beautiful feathered headdress and the beads across him. By the way, Lee in there is wearing some beads that I got from the Shipipo tribe, which is a tribe, one of the oldest tribes uh, in that area. Uh, they work in that kind of that's that's one of their traditional types of. Uh, this is not turned out for tourists, but one of the traditional types of private and adornment. Those are made from jungle seeds. Uh, but nevertheless, he uh, he gave me his paddle. Uh, it was a paddle, uh, and, and a paddle, of course, to to a a, a male in the this area is his personal piece of gear. It's it's very important to him. He lives in his little dugout canoe, and he gave me a paddle, his own paddle. And at three o'clock in the morning, one of the most touching things I've ever seen in my life. In this tiny tiny clearing. Uh, he had two little houses. He had two little uh, thatched houses, a, a typical type of house built on four or five poles. A thatch, beautifully designed, by the way. This thatched palm thatched roof, and uh, the platform. They build a platform that they sleep on. They kind of enclose it with palm. And uh, uh, we were in one, uh, myself and Saul, uh, Lee Chamberlain, who was. Uh, this is another story. Who is an athlete type Englishman who suddenly came into contact with this. We we all agreed it was one of the most moving experiences we've ever had. And we sat at 3 o'clock in the morning in this camp after they had gone to bed. 
around the around this little lantern, myself and Saul and Lee, and we, we just didn't know what to say about it. These people were so overwhelmingly kind and beautiful to us. And, I, and I, it's no connection with the noble savage concept or your idea of hospitality. Uh, you could see they were doing all their little things that they could do for us. And earlier I had done something which just came out of one of those coincidences. Uh, my secretary, uh, when I was about to leave for this trip, uh, she said, why don't you take your Jews harp? And your kazoo, which, as you know, I, I love to play and I enjoy playing it immensely. And we, as Americans, don't understand that these are our native instruments. Uh, uh, a lot of little old ladies are constantly wiring and writing. They don't play the kazoo. I happen to love it. And that's the end of it. And she says, why don't you take your Jews harp and your kazoo and your nose flute? Well, uh, after we had eaten and they had served, you know, you, you eat their food. If you don't eat their food, this is kind of a, not really an insult, but it's a slight uh, can you imagine somebody arriving at your house and they bring their lunch? And they say, well, you know, we don't trust your food, so we're bringing a lunch. So we ate their food, and they, they, they have a kind of yam, a, a yam that tastes very much like roasted chestnuts, by the way, uh, which they boil. Uh, they also have roast bananas. They merely throw them in the fire. These are bananas which are not quite like ours, the kind we're used to, but they're absolutely delicious. Uh, the hard like rock, they're roasted and you split the skin. They've been burning in the fire and there it is, hot, fantastically hot and sucking. You, you, you just shovel that out. It's soft and it's just beautiful, wonderful, uh, taste. I can't describe that taste. And so we had eaten and they were, they were burning a monkey for us. They call it burning a monkey and they'd really do burn it too. They just throw the monkey fur in, uh, insides and all into the fire, uh, for the next day. And and uh, we were sitting around at 3 o'clock in the morning. And there were, excuse me, I'm jumping ahead of myself. But after we had eaten, it was dark now. It, uh, darkness comes immediately in the jungle. It's one minute light and the next minute dark. Remind me, make a note of telling you about how we, after plunging through the undergrowth for about two miles, and this, this <laughs> to, to almost anybody uh, would be an impassable jungle trail. It's hacked through this jungle. Uh, to this clearing away from the river. We arrived and, uh, Tariri immediately took the men, myself and, and the other two guys down to this little jungle stream that they live on. An ice cold jungle stream that comes right through under the, the trees and we undressed and went into this water and took a bath just pouring the water. He gave us a little pot to pour the water over us. They're very clean and meticulous people. And we poured this pot, and very, very... By the way, they're also exceedingly, exceedingly modest. Uh, they, there's a modesty about them. And we poured the water over us, and we... Well, it was a great feeling. By the way, let's get some of these commercials out of the way. Don't, don't, just hold it up there, Lee. Let me see what you've got there. All right, hit, hit the note there, and we'll be right back. Hit it there, Dad. Miller Highlights in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller Highlight in Pop and Pour cans. Just Pop and Pour Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller Highlight, brewed from a century old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in pop and pour cans. 
often for Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Poppin' Four cans. Oh, uh, let me tell you some night about the native beer. You know how they drink? They don't drink water. Uh, the native has learned. You know, it's funny how, how man has a, uh, really is the most adaptable of all creatures. I, I, I'm convinced of that. And uh, the the thing about the natives, uh, the, the, in connection with the water, I guess they've learned uh, somehow over the centuries that water, the water is deadly. And they drink a native drink. It's uh, it's fermented from various types. It really isn't fermented. It's lightly fermented. It's kind of a yellowish liquid, which they drink after every meal. It's vaguely and not much alcoholic. So I don't think in terms of the native drinking this stuff and getting drunk and yelling and hollering. This is not what it is. It's a, it's a food, you see. And uh, the alcohol, of course, uh, is part of the native disinfectant. Uh, but after the meal, now I'll tell you this little story. This is one of the truly great experiences in my life. And I, I want you to accept it as that. I mean, I'm just telling you what happened. It had suddenly gotten dark. And uh, they they all drifted over. Uh, when the people eat in these little chakras, they don't eat in the way we do, en masse, in a little, you know, group of people all sitting on the table. Uh, they eat kind of piecemeal. Somebody will walk in and he'll take a little piece of monkey or he'll take a, take a, uh, a banana or something off out of the fire. And they eat, it's sort of, uh, it's definitely al fresco. But they eat in a, a kind of round robin way. It's just all casual. And now it's all over, the, the, the meal. And the end of the day has come, and there's very few moments in, in, a, in an Indian's day when he has what we would call leisure time. Living in the jungle is a full-time occupation, and I mean full-time. They start their day, I would say, a, at least an hour before dawn. Uh, it is very hard. The soil is not very conducive to this sort of thing. It's very hard to grow the little things they live off of. Hunting in the jungle is, as you probably know, very difficult. Uh, and dangerous. They have. They have. Uh, by the way, are you aware that the jaguar in that area is a genuine threat? It particularly kills small children, and uh, they're, they're they're very afraid of the jaguar. The jaguar has a, a certain mystical connection, but it's not fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're also very afraid of the anaconda, which uh, is the great snake of the area. And the anaconda. Uh, there's a story that uh, that one of the girls, Doris Cox, who was the by the way she works out at the pavilion Doris Cox was our translator she was the first one who had walked into their native village in 1950 a girl a college girl with another girl uh, Laurie Anderson and Dory Cox walked into that native village and said we're going to live here and they were headhunters then and I mean headhunters they were making ri raids on neighboring tribes and for six months they did not know whether they were about to be killed or not, and this is not melodramatic, it is true. And only later, when Tadidi uh, was able to make contact with them, and they were able to make contact with him, uh, he, and, and for he'd been, uh, he'd been brought into the light of our kind of world, uh, did he say that the six months they were debating constantly in the tribe whether to kill them or not, and there was one faction said kill them, the other faction said no, and he as chief, he says he could not... The way he put it, a chief does not kill women. <laughs> and he just does not kill women. And not that he's kindly, but this is an unmanly, unchiefly thing to do. And so after the six months, he made them sisters of all of them. Therefore, none of them could kill them. 
one does not kill one's sister. And uh, so this is the kind of thing. And and uh, here these people were, and uh, <laughs> this this strange, wonderful, primitive, they're just beginning to emerge from the Stone Age. You know, there are many tribes in that area have never seen a, a steel weapon or, or, or a steel axe. Many tribes. Right now, there is a tribe living in the jungle, not too far from where we were, that is so dangerous that they that the Peruvian government claims that they have uh, eliminated or killed over 800 people in the last year alone. A terribly dangerous tribe. And they're very primitive. They have no stone. They have no steel equipment. And they're now preparing to send a girl into that tribe. I was with this girl. She is about to go into this tribe in the next two or three months. And they have no idea how it's going to work out. They've been quietly laying the groundwork for this for the past year and a half. Now, why? Well, I'll tell you why later on, <laughs> why they're doing this. They're not doing it to destroy good people. Uh, they're doing it for another reason, which uh, is quite obvious, because they are destroying, this tribe is destroying good people for miles around. However, immediately after supper, it was quiet, and uh, the jungle was pitch black. You can't believe the blackness of the jungle. And we could see overhead the moon began to come out. And the jungle moon is so bright in spots where it comes through the trees that you can literally, actually read by it. It is a brilliant white light. And there was nothing for miles, just us. There were about 17 people uh, in his little family. Tariri, uh, another young, a young man had come because he heard we were coming. And he was just a great, beautiful young man who came up. And, and Tariri's son, uh, Arushpa, who took a fantastic liking to us. Uh, young 16-year-old boy. He took a great liking to us, particularly me, because of what happened. He was a musician, and I discovered it. After supper, uh, I, I went over to my bag and I took out my, my. Here it is, right here. And look at, look what the jungle has done to my steel, Jews harp. Do you see it? This thing is beautiful blue steel, and uh, two nights in the jungle, and it's literally a, a mass of rust. That's the kind of humidity that's in this jungle. And see it, Ted? Look at it. Two nights did that. Two nights. It's just look at it. And so after after supper, I took my uh, my. This is a very touching moment. I, I don't know how to describe it to you because because of what happened. I took my my uh, Jews harp out, see, and I just took it out, and they were all looking. They were all sort of smiling, and two little girls had attached themselves. Tiny little girls, about about two two or three years old, had attached themselves to me. They were holding my arm and sort of petting me. They were just beautiful. They were just laughing, and I'd look at them. They'd giggle, and they they loved my beard. They'd reach up and they'd pull my beard. Uh, they, they just loved to feel it, and they were laughing about it. And it turned out, incidentally, the, uh, later, when I asked Terlittery through the interpreter, this girl, Dory Cox, that the reason that they love beards, and this is uh, inexplicable to me, I'm just going to toss out what he said. Uh, he said the reason they love beards was, of course, they don't, you know, Indians are beardless, for those of you who might not know that. They have no beards at all, beautiful, smooth-shaven faces, no shade, I mean, beautiful. They have no beards at all, no hair on their faces. Occasionally, one will have just a slight, downy uh, suggestion of a mustache that just is there, but they have no beard at all. And he says the reason they love beards is because their ancestors had beards. And he made a funny remark earlier. He said, he said that, that all of the children laughed, always laughed every time I said anything because 
they said that he is is the is is the first big monkey who talks. <laughs> they 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 laugh because I was like a big monkey to them. No, I didn't shave at all. No, do they? No, they don't have any beard. They don't shave. They well, because Indians don't have beards. Uh, that no, they just don't. Uh, they do not have beards. They do not grow hair on their face. So uh, after dinner, I I took out my my Jews harp and I called them all around. I said, Dory, call them all around, and they all stood around. They didn't know what was going to happen. They all stood around, and looked, and I went like this. I took the Jews harp, and I said. Watch, see, and I sat on up on the table and I began to perform. I, I really did. I said, now watch, and I grinned, they all laughed. I said, now watch. I held it up to my mouth and I went, and there was a moment, and the kids giggled, and Tadidi looked, and Arushpa looked a big. Then I said, now tell them I will play them. This is an American folk instrument. This, I said, this is what the little people, the natives of America play. Uh, and I says, I, I'm, going to, I'm, a, I'm a native of America. I'm not going to play uh, a violin or an organ or sing a hymn. I'm going to play with the natives, of, just like you, natives. I says, I'm also a native. I'm a native. And I play my instrument. And so I played, uh, here's what I played. I played... You are my sunshine. And I finished it, and they were astounded. And I said, now I will sing the song to you. See? And I says, you are my sunshine, my... Oh. And they were just trans... They were, they were so enraptured by that. Their eyes were shining. And then I took my kazoo. I says, now I will play another Native American instrument. I went... <coughs> they laughed. They could see my beard... <coughs> I said, all right, now, all set now, here we go. <clears throat> and they, you couldn't have believed it. Well, well for a, I'm going to play the tapes of this session. By the way, all the while, without them even knowing it, I was taping the entire thing, my little tape recorder. You have never seen, their eyes were shining, they loved it so. And then I took out my nose foot, and that threw them. Because they play flutes, you see. I went, and the kids died. They were rolling around, and, and, and Tariti was yelling. Well, I played, and I played, I played You Are My Sunshine. I played Red River Valley. I played about five things. And then he says, we want to sing. So then they sang for me, all of them sang. And Arushpa came creeping out with his flute. And he has this long bamboo flute. And I can say, it, it sounds something like... Very intricate music they play, something like that. And the other boy brought his out, and they both played. And then I said, "Now I will play with you. Let's let's all sit in together on a session." Well, they led, and I followed with my Jews harp and my nose flute, and the three of us played, and the crowd went out of its mind. And we stayed till three and four o'clock in the morning, playing and singing, and the translator had faded off into the darkness. They had never had anything like this in their lives before. Many white men come to them and give them medicine. White men come and preach to them. White men come and study them. But no white man ever came to entertain them and be part of them. And when I left, Hariri said, 
He says, this, uh, we have never seen this kind of white man. He said, and, and he just loved it. Uh, they, he says, all, to, to use his exact phrases, he said that this is the first white man that has ever come to them who has participated with them, who has, who has done things with them. And uh, so this young boy came down to the float when we were about to leave. I don't want to tell you about this because this is, a good, this is the end of the story. But that night we played and sang, and one of the most touching things, uh, oh, let me do a couple of these commercials. No, I've got to do that. We have a, a commercial here. You, you begin to realize the value of education when you're there. What have I got here? If you're 17 and over and have had to leave school before getting your high school diploma, what's this? Here's great news for you. Just call MU7-9000 right away and find out how easy it is to complete your high school education at home. Uh, let's see, it's an academy that uh, you can trust because it's a division of the world-famous Encyclopedia Britannica. And they have a new teaching method. So if you have not completed high school, and it's surprising how many people haven't, just phone MU7-9000 and ask for the high school booklet. Or if you don't want to do that, just send a postcard to high school in care of Charlie Brown, W-O-R, New York 18, okay? And let's see, we also have uh, happiness with us tonight. You know, the last meal I had before I took off for the jungle was uh, was at happiness between 93rd and 94th. Or is it 92nd and 93rd? 93rd and 94th on Broadway, one of my absolutely favorite Chinese restaurants in New York. And I did not realize how much I like food until I sat down for a, a couple of hours to to uh, stringy monkey in the jungle. But nevertheless, if you've never tried uh, happiness, I would suggest you try this restaurant. It's a good one. It's between 93rd and 94th on Broadway. They have a bar, and uh, I think you'll find it a pleasant place. Seven days a week, by the way. Well, uh, this coming Saturday night, I have many things I'm going to bring down to the limelight. I'm going to bring a war club. These are all authentic, by the way. I got them from the tribes. This is not tourist stuff. And I'm going to do a show Saturday night down at the limelight with all of the stuff that I got from the tribe and as much as I can do about it uh, down there. So if you'd like to see some of these things, uh, we'll be at the limelight. Let's see, at five minutes past ten till midnight. Uh, if you can get in down there, I hope so. And I will bring as much of the stuff as I can carry into the limelight on that particular show. I want to say this. I'd like to thank the people who made it possible for us to go. Ludens, by the way, the Ludens Candy Company, uh, footed the bill for this fantastic trip and provided me and two other men with an adventure which I would like to try to tell you about. An adventure which I'm sure many men... I, I, I don't think many men have ever had, uh, certainly uh, not many men in 20th century America. And I'd like to tell you more about it during the weeks. It was a moving experience and one that I think uh, you'll find interesting as we explore it. So uh, keep your knees loose. It's dark in that jungle. <laughs> 